this is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. The economy's in crisis, and Liz Truss has only been in Downing Street for two weeks. It's been a bad start for the new Prime Minister. And from 80s Thatcherite reenactment to 90s retro Blairism, we analyse the latest developments in Labour, from the annual party conference to the Labour Files, a new investigative documentary from Al Jazeera. And what does all this mean for Scotland? That's all coming up on this week's episode of The Enemy Within. Hello listeners and welcome to the latest episode of The Enemy Within podcast. I'm Pete Romand and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, James Foley. James, how you doing? Pretty good, Pete. I'm back lecturing where I belong, doing my pro job. So, pleased to be back. Pleased to be back doing what I do best. Good stuff, James. Good stuff back at work. What is it you're teaching this year? Politics of the European Union. Well, that must be a fun topic for you. It is a fun topic because I get complete uniformity from the students. So it's good fun being able to challenge the preconceptions of some of the students. And hopefully they learn something along the way. Nice one. I think it's worth talking a little bit about what listeners can expect from this podcast, for new listeners at least, because up until now, this podcast has been behind the Patreon paywall. And now we're launching to the masses for free. So far, what we've usually been doing is attempting to get behind the mean stories a little bit and discuss some of the ideologies that are informing what has been going on in British politics, but also with an attempt to really focus in on Scottish politics as much as possible. James, what do you think people can expect? I think they can expect contrarian takes. I think they can expect to be brought out of their comfort zone of analysis and hopefully... It's going to be fun too. I hope it'll be fun. I have fun doing it, so I hope people have fun listening. Absolutely. I mean, hopefully there'll be some laughs along the way. Certainly, it's been fun so far. And to any new listeners out there, take everything we say with a little bit of a pinch of salt. We're not too serious about ourselves most of the time. Yeah, and to be honest, like, I, I'm enjoying the complete collapse of Western civilization. you know? I mean, it's been quite a good period for me personally. Yeah, I mean, I'm all right, Jack. Civilization's crumbling, but I'm enjoying life. So you can sit there with your beautiful baby, your lovely family, and look out the window at the Mad Max-style disintegration of everything in society and in the world. Yeah, pretty much. There's like rats on fire running about at the SNP-led West End. It's kind of a chaotic situation, not just in Glasgow. Not just when you go on SNP council, but pretty much everywhere, to be honest. So the madness just goes on and on. But you can find elements of happiness within this complete breakdown of capitalist civilization that we are seeing. I think you should maybe explain the rats on fire reference, James, because this is something that we have talked about a few times. Look, the thing is, my wife literally did see a rat on fire walking about in Glasgow. Uh, that actually happened. That's not a joke. It wasn't even during the height of the bin strike and all that sort of thing where nobody got their bins taken in for three weeks. It was directly before the COP26 cleanup where we tried to pretend that we were some sort of competent city for a week. But the week before that happened, my wife was walking about somewhere in the leafy West End and there was a rat walking down the road, as often you will see in Glasgow. But this rat was on fire, unlike most rats. 
You say it's walking around as if it was casually walking. I'm guessing it was like no, it was. scampering panickedly. No, it was just walking around on fire. Wow. Well, if that's what was happening before, James, imagine what's happening out on those streets right now. Yeah, it's a foretaste of the future. <laughs> it's like Liz Truss's bit brain rats just walking around on fire. Not even caring because it's just a norm. So, James, let's get into Liz Truss's Britain. Over the last few days, we have had some pretty dire economic news. Yesterday, we heard that the Bank of England was buying up government bonds to avoid a run that was set to devastate pension accounts because it came out in the news yesterday that there was a massive sell-off on British pension accounts. There was a potential doom spiral, as they called it, and the Bank of England decided to start buying up the bonds that were being sold off to avert this doom spiral that was supposedly going to be at least as bad as 2008, according to Robert Peston. This isn't great. The funny thing about all this, Pete, it's not like Liz Truss is doing anything she didn't say she was going to do. I mean, this is like a slow motion car crash that has been happening over a period of several months. One crazy thing about this is, remember only a week or so ago, we were going through that crazed period of national mourning, which we discussed on the previous podcast. One of the most insanely heightened periods of British nationalism and state propaganda I've ever experienced in my life. So you really could not have imagined more proprietous circumstances for a new leader to emerge into British politics. And generally speaking, you always expect a new leader to get some sort of benefit of the doubt and some sort of so-called bounce when they come in. And yet I have... To be honest, never seen anything quite like the way that this has crash landed. Theoretically, you would think that when you're acting in favour of bankers' bonuses and corporate profits and elite tax brackets and so on and so forth, that you would marshal the whole of the capitalist class in your defence. And yet so disorderly has been the process under which they have imposed this budget that you have a situation where every single elite outlet of capitalist opinion that we associated with the neoliberal era effectively has condemned it. And not only has condemned it in the sharpest possible terms and has, in some cases, acted in an emergency to try and bail out some of the consequences. So we're talking here about the Bank of England. We're talking here about the American state. We're talking here about the International Monetary Fund. We're talking here about the Financial Times. We're talking here about the Economist, right? Every single one of these institutions, which I cannot think of a bigger litany of the big hitter institutions of neoliberalism and every one of them thinks this is a massive disaster. The consequence of which is further to erode the link which has been eroded already between conservatism and the capitalist class in Britain, which had already eroded over Brexit. But the thing was, what Boris Johnson managed to do was to compensate for that with a new electoral base amongst some lower class elements elements in the north of England and so on and so forth. But because this budget is also an attack on working people, they've lost that base as well. Hence, they find themselves 33 points behind in one recent poll. I actually listened to an interview with a market trader earlier today, and he was saying he and all his trader pals were talking about how crazy this was and they'd never seen anything as crazy as the policies pursued by trust in their life. And they're not usually the sort of people I go to for sound economic advice. 
But the fact that they are saying this is quite telling. Look, you wouldn't in some ways go for them for sound economic advice, but in a way you would. What you can appreciate about such a person is that they are on the lookout for the best source of profit, right? And they will tend to go in that direction. And in some sense, they wouldn't be succeeding in their own profession if they didn't have a certain nose for that. Now, of course, that can have certain negative impacts on the long-term social health of the economy, et cetera, et cetera. But nonetheless, on that sheer measure, you would expect them to know something about what they are talking about. And clearly, they all think it's a complete disaster. And this is the thing, when in the news, it's often said that the market has reacted badly to certain news. Actually, what you are talking about is a collection of individuals across the Mm. world. And we're talking about people like market traders who are buying and selling stocks in companies, in various investments and so on. And in many respects, it's often their reactions that are being talked about when you see the reaction of the market. Yeah, I mean, it's the old Thatcherite thing, you can't buck the market. And clearly the conservative leadership thinks that they can't. It is quite astounding, though, when you think about Truss's tax plan. That is to say that we've just gone through COVID, which has been a period in which wealth has been redistributed overall towards the rich more than at any other time in recent history. And then Truss comes in and launches a tax plan that is going to double down on that. It is going to massively redistribute wealth towards the richest people in British society. It causes market chaos and as a result the bank of england has to step in and print money and try and avert the chaos and effectively the bank of england and our taxpayers money is being used to try and avert the crisis and fallout caused by this massive redistribution towards the wealthiest in society it's pretty astounding it is pretty astounding it's Unprecedented would be the words. And the only thing I can kind of say is British politics has been so turbulent over the last period that it's difficult to really say whether any shift is entirely permanent. We've seen various things come and go. We said the rise of the Brexit party and the subsequent collapse of the Brexit party. We've seen moments that seemed like they were intractable crises that turned out to be a flash in the pan, etc., etc., And it just seems like there's a perpetual lock on crises throughout British politics that just seems intractable, which kind of does suggest that maybe in two months' time, there'll be some other crisis that will come along that will somehow knock this one out of the park and somehow be redeeming for trust. So I wouldn't like to say she's finished already as such. Andrew Neil, I think, is saying that from what I've heard and other people are saying that. And apparently there's people putting letters in already from within the Conservative Party. But it's difficult to make predictions at this stage, but it does seem like it could be one of the shortest political reigns in British history if she's not careful. Because I cannot think in British history of such an ignominious start to a political era. One of the things is as well that Truss hasn't insulated herself against attacks from other sections of the Conservative Party. When she formed her cabinet, she surrounded herself entirely with supporters. She didn't bring in anyone from other wings of the party, leaving herself open to attacks from other wings of the party the moment that anything goes wrong and things have gone spectacularly wrong since she took office. The thing is, though, that I can't see the Conservative Party wanting to replace her when we're 18 months out from a general election. Yeah. 
Now, of course, if the if things keep going as badly as they are right now, if she proves to be as ineffectual a leader as she has so far proven to be, then they will have to, or else they'll be walking into electoral suicide. But after replacing Johnson, you want one leader to carry you through the next election. At the moment, either she's going to have to be replaced, or she might have to call an early election. Perhaps, anecdotally, on the basis of what has been reported in newspapers and on social media and so on, you can see even prominent people associated with the Conservative Party in Scotland calling for a Labour vote. I think I might be wrong and I need to double check, but I believe both Alex Massey and Adam Tompkins have done so. So they are two of the most prominent free-thinking intellectuals associated with the right wing in Scotland, probably thinking that the Labour Party is the one way that they can save the union from the chaos that has been unleashed by this government. But that's kind of symptomatic of the fact that there's probably quite a lot of people in the Conservative Party thinking along those lines, except for the fact that they have seats to defend and they cannot afford the complete collapse that seems to be in the offing that all the polls are suggesting that they are going to experience. There is no way of disguising the fact that they have walked into an unmitigated disaster. I have Marxist friends who have this tendency that some people do to imagine that there must be some genius strategy here, that there must be some sort of devilish plot to crash the economy so as to achieve a vast reduction in working class living standards or a massive drop in inflation by making mass unemployment or something along those lines. It's nice to think that there's sometimes some Wizard of Oz type character behind the scenes that's making all these clever plots. But really, I think what this signifies is just the complete hollowing of politics to such an extent that the Tory party is probably being cut off from much of its capitalist roots and has been taken over by ideologues who don't really know what they're doing. So James, let's explore that a little bit more. The Conservative Party is the traditional party of capital in this country. What has happened that it has become so divorced from the capitalist class that it doesn't seem to speak for them in the way that it, at a functional level, is supposed to? We've thought before about there being a void between politics and the people, and basically... The old institutions that link political parties to social forces in society have started to break down. We tend to imagine that that's on the left, right? So that's mm -hmm. the traditional link, say, between the Labour Party and the trade unions that kind of creates a political institutional link that ensures working class representation and so on. Now, of course, that has broken down. The Labour Party is, if anything, a party of the professional managerial class, as are many of the different parties they essentially circle the whole remains of the neoliberal state, right? So that is primarily something we associate with the left. But I think it also works for the right as well, because traditionally what has disciplined the right to the social forces of capital and vice versa has been fear of the left, has been fear of the working class and fear of democracy and so on and so forth. So when you cut the link between the parties of the left, such as Labour, SNP, etc., etc., right, and organise social forces of working class people that are considered threatening to the capitalist order, it does mean that you can create a sort of disconnection between capitalism and the right wing as well. So that could be one explanation. Now, you see in America a process that I think you're beginning to see here as well, which is that the party of capitalism now increasingly in America is the Democrats, and they are trusted to run things on behalf of big business more than the Republicans. Generally speaking, as a social force 
American capital tends to align more, but increasingly behind the Democrats. And I think it could be the case that you'll start to see that in the United Kingdom. You already saw a foretaste of that with Brexit, but it was held off by the fact that Corbyn was leading the Labour Party. Now that it's Starmer, I think you will see capital lining up behind the Labour Party. And increasingly, I think that will be the future direction of British politics as a sort of orderly process of capital getting behind the Labour Party and getting behind the sort of return to a sort of Cameron era balanced budget type agenda with a little bit of additional Green New Deal sprinkled on top. One of the interesting things about the United States is that because the economy is so large and the capitalist class is so large and it's very heterogeneous, you do actually see divisions within the capitalist class in the United States. And for example, you have finance and the tech sector and so on, for the most part, coming in behind the Democrats. You do still have some holdovers of capitalists in extraction, in manufacturing, the Koch brothers, these sorts of things that tend to still align with the Republican Party because they just tend to want to involve themselves directly in the political process to a much greater extent and have historically attempted to use the Republican Party as a vehicle and so on. Now, to some extent, that has been made difficult by the populist turn of sections of the Republican Party. But I suppose the point is that in the US, you can really see different fractions of capital, to use that Pulancy in turn, different fractions of capital supporting different political projects. But I think you're absolutely right. The majority of the capitalist class, and certainly its most advanced elements, have swung in behind Biden, have swung in behind the Democratic Party as a sane alternative to what they see as an overly confrontational and uncontrollable Republican Party. The thing about the UK is that you don't actually have that same diversity within the capitalist class. Now, of course, Mm. it's heterogeneous as well, but the British economy is far more concentrated in certain areas. Finance being one of the main ones. So coming back to those market traders that we were previously talking about, we're talking about people involved in finance capital. They want stability. They do not want runs on the market. And that is exactly what you're seeing being caused by this conservative government. So it stands to reason that they are going to come in behind the party of the centre ground, the party of stability, the party of sound money, now, according to Keir Starmer, and see that as a vehicle for political leadership in the future. So I completely agree with you, James. I totally do. We're going to come on to the Labour Party and we're going to discuss them and we're going to discuss Keir Starmer in some detail in one second. But first, I just want to ask you a couple more questions. And the first one is, to what extent is this a British crisis versus an international crisis? Is it the case that this was caused by Truss's tax policies and markets reacting, but it's unlikely to spread. Does this suggest a general volatility within the economic system as a whole at the moment? And is this crisis likely to spread to other countries? There's two aspects of crisis. There's the economic crisis and the political crisis. And in both senses, I think it's more acute in Britain, but the symptoms are obviously there elsewhere as well. The European economies in general are going to suffer real consequences of the rising oil and gas prices, of inflation and so on and so forth. There are obviously problems ongoing in America there as well. 
Britain, in for many self-inflicted reasons, has found itself in a situation where it has things somewhat more acute, and particularly in the last couple of weeks. But a crisis, yes, is general, and Britain might well just be a foretaste of what others will experience in time to come. When it comes to these global economic crises, often it'll tend to be the case that you think one country has got it especially bad and then everyone's pointing the finger and laughing at them and pretty soon it's everywhere else. In Europe, you've just had elections in Italy and Sweden that have brought the far right either to a position of power or to the position of kingmaker. And these are parties that are explicitly rooted in the history of neo-fascism. The left can get somewhat idiotic with throwing the word fascist about, but there are some legitimate claims that these parties are genuinely neo-fascist in character. And I don't see any reason why that won't continue to be the case in other European elections as well, because frankly, where else are rebellious energies going to go? I don't see that radical left getting its act together in the rest of Europe any more than I see them getting their act together in the United Kingdom. There is a political crisis, there is an economic crisis. Both of them are more acute and concentrated for the moment in the United Kingdom, but you can already see the contagion spreading. And although there are a lot of self-inflicted aspects to the British crisis, it's also true to say that it's symptomatic of deeper things, the impact of the coronavirus. There was already an economic slowdown coming before that. And obviously the repercussions of the sanctions regime and everything that followed from that surrounding the Russia-Ukraine war. All those things have come together to create pressure on all capitalist economies. And Britain might just be forced because it shot itself in the foot. Finally, on the question of impending economic meltdown, what does this mean for Scotland? Nicola Sturgeon, in response to everything that's been happening this week, described this as the worst economic crisis in living memory, suggesting it's going to be worse in 2008. What are the implications for Scotland? And also, what are the implications for the Scottish independence movement? Because while the Bank of England's interventions have dominated the news for the last couple of days, prior to that, the big story was the crisis of the pound. The falling strength of the pound on international currency markets. And obviously, the SNP has historically tied its case for independence to sterlingisation. That is the idea that an independent Scotland would use the pound sterling going forward and would effectively sacrifice all fiscal autonomy to the Bank of England. What does this mean, James? What does this mean for the case for independence? What does this mean for Scotland? Historically, what is the main argument for remaining in the union? If you're brutally thinking about what cuts with an ordinary person on the street, what cuts with ordinary people on the street is that they believe that the British economy is going to be more stable than the situation of an independent Scotland. So theoretically, you would imagine this could be some sort of boon time for the case for independence insofar as one of the main barriers has been unlocked. I would imagine it's the case that people have now been won to the point of view, which says that the British economy is intrinsically unstable and bound by the winds of political fortune, which can cause pretty serious repercussions for ordinary people, not just working class people who bear the brunt of austerity measures, etc., etc., as we might have said in the past. Increasingly, also your sort of middle-class person that's worrying about their mortgages and their energy bills as well. So all of those things would seem to suggest it. The downside being, firstly, what you said, it's the case that the SNP has also bet on the stability 
of the British economy and particularly the British currency as being part of their case for independence. And thus, they're not really in a strong position to be able to force home the advantage that they have in terms of this particular moment. In fact, it would only perhaps undermine the particular case that they make for independence. But also in political terms, the fortunes of Scottish independence are always very much tied to assumptions on behalf of the Scottish electorate that the Conservatives are going to be in power in perpetuity. The more people believe that it's going to be permanent Tory rule, the more support for independence tends to rise as a rule. What we have now is 33% leads for Labour in the polls. As that starts to filter in to the consciousness of people, what implications does it have, not just the formal level of official registered support for independence, but also the willingness of people to actually push forward and take the risk? We don't know the answer to that. But the SNP has put itself in a doubly difficult position because obviously nobody expects them to win the Supreme Court case. And I think, to be honest, if they did, they'd be up shit creek without a paddle because clearly they don't have a plan for how to deal with winning that. What they're really banking on is an election. And in that election, they're going to be in a peculiar position because the whole thing is going to be anti-Tory. The whole thing is going to be get the Tories out. And then you're going to have to have an argument about how do you actually do that? Do you go for broke for independence? Or do you just plump behind Starmer, as many people will be tempted to do, much as Starmer fills me with horror, there'll be many a middle-class mortgage pair who might think, hell, that guy doesn't sound so bad. But I would imagine that the SNP really are going to have to move fast themselves because in the current narrative, they are completely shut out of the national conversation that's going on. Everything is filtering back into Labour versus the Conservatives, as I said, it's like the mid-90s without the economic boom. It's like the end of history times are back, but the economy's in the shitter. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after this break. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot. Welcome back, listeners. In the last segment, we talked about Liz Truss, and her love of attempting to reenact 1980s Thatcherism. Now we're going to move forward a decade to the 1990s and Keir Starmer's Labour Party conference because it seems like there's some Blairism going on. The two main parties in Britain right now seem to be having a sort of 80s versus 90s reenactment society battle. But we've had Labour Party conference. And apparently, the Labour Party is back where it should be in the centre ground of politics. James, what do you make of what's been happening? Well, as I said, it's different though, isn't it? If you loved the 90s in terms of thought, you thought the lightning seeds were brilliant and you kind of liked cool Britannia, but you hated the growing economy and rising living standards, this is the time for you because that's basically <laughs> the Labour Party that we're going to get is kind of what I think of as all the terrible things about Blairism, but also we're just going to get poorer, right? Great. That sounds wonderful. 
So there's been a couple of different messages that have gone out from the Labour Party conference this week. On the one hand, we have seen Starmer very much positioning Labour in the centre ground of British politics. There's been very direct references to the Blair era, with, for example, Starmer uh, saying that the Labour Party will be the political wing of the British people, a slogan taken straight out of Blair's 97 playbook. Starmer, in reaction to Truss, is arguing that the Labour Party are now the party of sound money. And so we can't expect any economic profligacy from the Labour Party. On the other hand, there has been some positioning to the left as well. That is to say that Starmer has suggested that there will be some sort of investment bank set up on his watch. He has said that Labour will renationalise the railways. And he's actually changed his message on the Labour movement and strikes a little bit. That is to say, he did an interview in which he was asked about the CWU strikes and he was very supportive of the CWU. So what, James, what's your analysis of what's happened at the Labour Party conference this week? To be honest, I don't think there's much to be particularly cock-a-hoop about. I'm very pessimistic about what a Keir Starmer government would actually mean for the left. I know others seem to have taken a different opinion on this. Like who? Nevada media seem to be very soft, for instance, but it seems that there's more of a process of enthusiasm surrounding the whole thing because Labour actually believes they're going to win the next election now. There might well be some efforts at a national energy strategy and there'll probably be something that's sort of the type that the SNP attempted where there were these vast promises of what this would mean, which in reality turned out to mean very little in practice. Similarly, I think real nationalisation almost is like pushing that open door. I mean, it's it's already been forced into elements of emergency nationalisation anyway, because frankly, it's difficult to keep it running any other way. But I think broadly speaking, it's never really worth examining the various promises that opposition parties make in opposition, because it's very easy to promise things when you are in opposition. You've got to deliver them in government. What about the national anthem, James? Much has been made of this. Um, Well, look, yeah, this is the thing about the left, though, right? I mean, at one moment, it's like, oh, terrible Keir Starmer, who took the national anthem. And then two minutes later, like, yeah, Keir Starmer, you talked about a national energy company. Look, it's important to try and not fall into these various waves of enthusiasm on either side and try and actually work out what are the real coalition social elements that are lining up behind Starmer. It's much better to trust to that type of analysis, I think, if you want to know what will really go on. In terms of the national anthem, obviously, I find it pretty horrific. It's not exactly something that fills me full of patriotic glee in any way whatsoever. But to be honest, more worrying that anthem really is the revival of a particular type of post-imperial British nationalism anyway which is about British leadership within a Western alliance of states with America and overall lead with Britain in second in command, able to pursue imperial policy, etc., etc. I'll be honest, everyone kept talking about how they were singing God Save the King. I really didn't care. This is the sort of thing that means very little to me. I'll be honest, 
I didn't know that they didn't sing it already. I assumed that they probably did. It's exactly what you'd expect the <laughs> Labour Party to do. What I was more annoyed about is the lack of media attention and lack of debate about the release of the Labour files. Have you seen any of this, James? So, listeners, this week, Al Jazeera has released a three-part documentary. Each one, each episode is about an hour and 10 minutes and it goes into and details the way in which sections of the right of the Labour Party worked with other groups and actively attempted to undermine the Corbyn project in an incredibly underhand way. The ways in which they attempted to weaponize anti-Semitism, to attack the left and to drive out left-wing members of the party. And it's worth saying that they show that Jewish members of the Labour Party, anti-Zionist Jews in the Labour Party, were significantly more likely to go through disciplinary procedures, to be suspended and to be expelled from the party than any other minority group. And the documentaries speak to a number of Jewish members of the Labour Party who experienced this. And it's really quite harrowing in places, listening to the experiences that they had. Some of these are just like lovely old people, many of whom had parents who were Holocaust survivors and so mm -hmm. on. And, they, and them recounting their stories of having to be called into disciplinary meetings with these young Blairite idiots who subsequently lied about them, lied about them in the national media. And these people, many of them had their lives destroyed as a result of what went on. The fact that this has received so little attention in the debate surrounding the Labour Party conference. This is why I say I don't really care about the anthem. Why is everyone talking about that when in actual fact Keir Starmer was probably culpable in organising effectively a right-wing coup against Corbyn and against his allies? Well, he was. To be honest, the left lacked the backbone to actually say that at the time, and they've suffered the consequences of that as a result. We probably should have been a lot more disciplined and clear about what was actually going on at that time. I mean, not only that, if you want to think about Keir Starmer, clearly he was the architect behind much of the people's vote strategy that crash landed that election and handed it to Johnson as well. So Keir Starmer has a great deal to answer for. I haven't seen the Labour Files, if I'm being honest. I plan to watch it, but part of me is just too depressed to watch it, quite frankly, because um, it, to be honest, in some ways, I'm not really angry at the right wing of the Labour Party in a way because I never trusted them to have the general interest of the overall left block of society at heart when they were doing what they were doing. It was quite clear that their goal was to take back the Labour Party, to sabotage Corbynism, etc, etc. And it's not like they were even ambivalent or ambiguous about any of that. They tried coups against him from day one. There were two of them. And it's only when those failed that they had to resort to these type of measures. I get more angry, to be honest, and I know some people will think this is sectarian or divisive and so on, but frankly, I'm more angry at those people who should be defending the interest of the left and having a backbone and telling the truth, quite frankly, about what's going on. The truth is that much of the best reporting about this, yes, yeah, some of it comes from Al Jazeera, but much of it comes from Peter Hitchens uh, and Peter Oborn, two journalists of the conservative right. And it's just the fact that they have a backbone and some journalistic principles 
that makes them able to see what other people are willing to admit. Oborn's featured very prominently in the documentary. He speaks throughout it. And while I disagree with Oborn on almost every other political issue, he has at least a little bit of journalistic integrity. And it's actually amazing to see him in the documentary because it actually really makes you realise how little is left amongst the rest of them. Because he's a proper journalist. The thing about someone, some of these people on the left, they're really activists who are salespeople for their own virtue as an activist. And that's part of the reason that they couldn't stand up to the smear campaign was that they were worried that their sense of virtue that they trade in would come under attack. So rather than trying to tell the truth, they try to spin things in such a way as to emphasise that they have the most moral point of view, et cetera, et cetera. And that is the problem, I think, of an activist journalist class. I think the two of the things sometimes are overly confused. And sometimes you are better with someone that just has a hard-nosed instinct, quite frankly, for the truth and a backbone to defend it, rather than someone that's trying to appeal to the milieu of activists who, quite frankly, get a lot of things wrong. I had a very similar attitude to you, or like a sort of a similar emotional, affective attitude to you about this whole situation as well before watching it. That is to say that I didn't feel angry at specific people particularly. I had a fairly dispassionate take, which was, yes, we know that the right of the Labour Party are obviously attempting to undermine the Corbyn project. They've pursued various different tactics throughout uh, Corbyn's reign as Labour Party leader. And the two, in the end, it really worked. The People's Vote campaign and the general shift towards everything has to be about uh, remaining in the European Union, which was yes. actively led by Keir Starmer. That was one side of it. And the other side of it was the undermining of Corbyn through smearing him as an anti-Semite. I think that I just saw them both as political tactics and it's all part of the political game and the right are often quite good at playing these dirty games. After watching the documentary, I felt really angry. I'll be honest, I was watching it and I felt really angry because I think that I hadn't really thought about the human element of it. That is to say the emotions of people who were long-time left-wing Labour Party activists, particularly long-time socialist Jewish members of the Labour Party who who dedicated their life to a project and who were filled with hope and who were inspired by Corbyn's leadership. And another thing the documentary does well is it gives a voice to Palestinians in Britain. Who got no voice at the time. We all know that on shows like Panorama and so on, it was only right-wing Labour Party members with a particular agenda who were interviewed and the left got cut out of the debate. And they make a very good point of saying, yeah, that's true, but also Palestinians and Palestinian voices were completely eradicated. They could not get a hearing whatsoever. And that is one of the things that I think it's easy to forget about. And it's one of the things that when I was watching the documentary, I got really quite angry about. I don't doubt it. And to be honest, I'm sure I would feel the same way if I were to watch it. But I also think we need a dispassionate assessment of where we went wrong. Corbynism is a dead duck, right? I mean, it's long gone. Any such elements of it as exists are being pulled in behind Starmer's Labour Party or they're being pushed out to the margins. The early reports of Labour Party conference this week were the Corbynite left got routed. Precisely. They are basically now in irrelevance to British politics. And then look, the fact that the British press is not covering these documentaries, 
even though they bear on a central turning point in recent British political history, that's reflective of the fact that, look, everyone knows silently, there's a silent admission that, yes, this just was politics, which is kind of reflected in the Ford report and so on as well. It's pretty clear that it was just a factional game that was going on and the media played along with it because it's not just the left-wing Novara and Owen John types who are activists, right? Much of the sort of centrist block of journalists that dominate in the BBC, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they're activists of a sort as well, right, when it comes down to it ultimately too. And they were being activists on behalf of the right wing of Labour, who they thought of as natural rulers of Britain and Corbyn as a usurper, whose very presence in the leadership of the party was unconstitutional and un-British. And they were determined that he should be overthrown. So they acted morally outraged at the time. But now it can just be swept under the carpet and you don't need to talk about it, etc., etc. Because look, we all know it was the game of politics and Corbyn lost. You can watch the Labour Files on YouTube. All of them have been uploaded free on YouTube. You can see the three episodes by typing in Labour Files Al Jazeera. And I thoroughly recommend listeners do that. James, one last topic I think that we should cover, which is Labour and Scotland. What does the current trend in British politics towards the Labour Party mean for Scottish politics? Personally, I can't see it leading to a revival of the fortunes of the Scottish Labour Party. I think that the political dynamic here is different enough that it's not the case that Anna Sarwar's Labour are going to necessarily see a big polling jump. Having said that, it looks like Starmer's Labour, while moving to the centre, have also managed to outflank the SNP from the left to a large extent. What do you think? There are two elements that they could win over here. I mean, you've seen basically three thinking members of the Scottish Tory bloc riding in behind Labour, people such as Adam Tompkins, people such as Alex Massey. And that is symbolic of the fact that they see Labour as being a more viable and stable voice of unionism and the best bulwark against the SNP. I think you'll also potentially get people who are going to make the calculation that their fundamental thing in politics has been against the Tories. Now, they might have supported Nicola Sturgeon or the SNP on a soft basis, and even independence on a soft basis, of thinking, well, this is the way we can get rid of the Tory rule, etc., etc. Those people could also be potentially won by a juggernaut that's heading towards this 90s revivalist Labour Party. The question that Labour would have to be able to answer, and that they've never been good at answering in recent Scottish history, it's whether they can pull those elements together, the Toryish unionist element and the soft nationalist element that is sympathetic or has voted for the SNP in the past, particularly, of course, as the Scottish Labour Party is very sectarian towards anything that is associated with the SNP, partly out of the narcissism of small differences, because if you take independence out of the equation, they are basically the same party in terms of everything that they stand for. Well, James, should we leave it there? Yeah, we can leave it there. I think that's a good episode that we've recorded right there. I hope so. I hope we've uh, injected some doom and gloom into people's lives, you know? I mean, I think the general thesis is that in times of doom and gloom, people are just going to want to have some escapism and, you know, maybe they'll go and watch Lord of the Rings or whatever. But to be honest, there's no real escape in the gloom. You go and watch Lord of the Rings... 
And then some idiot will say, why are there black elves? And then some other idiot will say, no, there should be more black elves. This is the most important political struggle in contemporary capitalism. So there is no escape. So just listen to us and be depressed. It reminds me of that uh, that guy, Lawrence Fox. Do you remember he came up with that little theory of history that he put out? What was it? Bad times make strong men. Strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. So according to the Lawrence Fox theory of history, there, there are a lot of strong men being created right now. Yeah, I mean, good luck with that assessment. I mean, uh, times have been shit for a while and, you know, there ain't no giants about. (laughs) That is very true. Well, listeners, we're sorry to leave you on this gloomy note, but maybe Lawrence Fox will be proved right and giants will emerge from this. We'll have Lawrence Pod on uh, Lawrence Fox on the pod next week to explain. <laughs> That'd be great fun. Yeah, why not? As much as that thing he said is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life, it is actually like a sort of explicitly defined theory in some respects, which you don't always get from random, crazy, right-wing nut actors. In fairness to the man, he does punch above his weight. I mean, he got married to Billy Piper. Did he? I didn't even he know did. that. Yeah. I just knew that he was like some guy on the Morse prequel. <laughs> yeah, he just had some stupid cultural right-wing opinions. I, I, was, I was always amazed that he managed to get like some sort of platform in society off being some fucking extra in some shit show. To be honest, that's not why he got a platform in society. Nobody knew him when he was doing that shitty Morse prequel, right? The reason he got a platform in society is because of the sort of morons on the left who think that the most important thing is the struggle about black elves on Lord of the Rings and that sort of thing, right? They turned Lawrence Fox into a phenomenon. Quite why they wanted to do so, I don't know, but they basically injected this man into the national consciousness. Sort of like they were that bit in Clockwork Orange where his eyes are pinned open and he's watching all this horror, do you know what I mean? I feel like the woke left pinned our eyes open and forced us to to watch Lawrence Fox and fucking uh, Jordan Peterson. By the way, I'd also like to say, listeners, that uh, my slagging off of that Lewis show is is not my opinion of the original Morse, and John Thaw, the actor that played Morse, was great. I absolutely loved him. And he was a good socialist as well, if uh, memory serves me correctly. You don't see the woke left banging on about John Thaw, though, do you? Maybe if they banged on about John Thaw as much as they banged on about Lawrence Fox, we'd be living in a better society. You know, I think that might be true. All right, James. Well... Clockwork Orange, we've all got our eyes peeled back and we're watching the horror. <laughs> Listeners, until next week, we'll see you then. James, see you next week. Bye bye. <laughs>